You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us together open the Word of God. We turn to three different passages in the New Testament. First of all, to Romans 4, verses 18 to 25. Against all hope, the scripture says there, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he tested or faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We turn to Colossians chapter 3, the verses 1 to 10. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy talk or language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old nature or your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Then we turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. 
so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have come in Lord's Day 17 to the great turning point. From here, it is that the creed moves on from humiliation to exaltation. Finally, the passion, crucifixion, and death of Jesus Christ is over. It's all done. And now it is on to the resurrection, ascension, return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can say from the darkness we have gone into the light. And what a glorious, overwhelming light it is. And so as we now turn to Lord's Day 17, our hearts are filled with expectation and anticipation. Well, what's this? Only one question and answer in the catechism on the great resurrection of our Lord? Only a few words dedicated to this most momentous of all events? Only a quick passing glance at history's greatest moment. Truly, what is this but disappointment? For consider, if we were writing the Catechism today, I think we would do it differently. For example, we would ask what happened to our Lord after his death and burial. And we would answer, three days later, he arose as the victor over death and the grave. And next we would ask, in anticipation of the skeptics, of course, can you prove this? And we would answer, indeed, for our risen Lord appeared to the women, to all of the apostles except Judas Iscariot, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, to 500 brethren at one time, even to his betrayer, Peter, and to his estranged brother, James. And then after the question might arise, who is to say that his disciples did not steal his body and make up all of these resurrection stories? To which the obvious answer would be, it is impossible to explain otherwise how his weak disciples became such bold and committed apostles, even to the point of being willing to give up their very own lives. Liars are never willing to die for their own lies. And now, no doubt, beloved, more questions and answers along these lines could be dreamed up. But I think you get the point. We had expected more from Lord's Day 17. We had expected a fuller, longer treatment. We had expected far more hallelujahs. But nevertheless, it is not to be. We need to make do this afternoon with what we have received. And what have we received? A short, pointed, three-part answer. And indeed, when we now take a closer look at this answer and try to grasp what it is telling us, we can see that it is not 
quite as disappointing as it first appears to be. As a matter of fact, as we think about it and reflect on it, we see that there are some things here that can be salvaged. For what does the old Heidelberger do? It feels no need to defend the resurrection of our Lord. And indeed, I might add, it was written in a time when the resurrection of the Lord needed no defense. Almost everyone believed it, embraced it, accepted it. Rare was the skeptic, the doubter, and the denier. To be one of those was an instant ticket out of civilized society and into the wasteland and oblivion. And hence the catechism doesn't bother to formulate all kinds of questions and answers that we might find necessary today. After all, our world is a world of growing ignorance, unbelief, and indifference. Well, how the world has changed since January the 19th, 1563. So, beloved, as we turn to the catechism here, we are turning, one could say, to a better time, not to ask nostalgic We are turning to a time when it was not necessary to prove, but simply to mine. To mine all of the treasures and the riches and the profits of the resurrection. And so what precisely are these profits all about, these riches? I preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, very simply, resurrection profits. And these include three things, the fact that our old life has changed, our new life is launched, our future life is promised. Well, beloved, of the three prophets identified by the Heidelberg Catechism, the first one may be the hardest to grasp. Consider only the language of answer 45 as it opens first by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make a share in the righteousness which he obtained for us by his death. Now, what does that mean? We get the first part of the answer right away, I think. We know what it means by his resurrection. He has overcome death. That's easy. It's obvious. Christ Jesus, it's saying, by rising from the dead, has defeated it disarmed it and overcome it. And that's great. Awesome. But then we come to the second part of the answer. The part that reads, so that he might make a share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. And now here we tend to run suck. What does this mean? Why, why that big word, righteousness? And, and how do we as believers get to share in the righteousness? And, and what's this about obtaining Christ's righteousness? In short, what does all of this mean? And how does it profit us? Of course, beloved, we could skip all this. I suppose that 
In doing so, we would be in keeping with the spirit of the age in which we live. Today, people are into theology light, L-I-T-E, like beer. Stripped down to the bare essentials. Today, even Christian people are not really famous for being diggers or questioners or debaters. Today, we tend to be famous for the ten easy steps or dummy's guide to theology. And as well, there's all this postmodern stuff. It tries to tell us that feeling is more important than thinking. The truth is simply a matter of one's own interpretation and that everyone's interpretation of the truth is equally valid. So who cares about righteousness? Well, beloved, I would say to you, the Apostle Paul cares about it. And if he cares about it, that means the Holy Spirit cares about it. And if the Holy Spirit cares about it, then you know God cares about it. What does Paul write? Look at the last verse of Romans 4. We read it together a few moments ago. What does it say? Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our righteousness. And you thought that the catechism had invented that big word righteousness, didn't you? Nothing doing. It comes straight from the Apostle Paul and from the Holy Spirit. And that must mean that it is something important. And it is. Well, what does it mean? Well, I would say to you for an answer, you need to read not simply Romans chapter 4, the last part, but you need to read those first four chapters of Paul's majestic epistle to the Romans. And what is Paul doing there? Well, you can say he's describing the very foundations of the Christian faith. And where do those foundations begin? They begin with an acknowledgement, with a confession, with a fundamental realization. And what is it? It's the admission that all people are sinful. That there are no perfect people on the face of the earth. And of course the Jews might claim to be the exception because they have the promises, the laws, and the covenants. And in addition, the Gentiles might also seek special status due to their ignorance. But the Apostle Paul dismisses all of this. He says the Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under sin. You read that in Romans 3.9. And then he pounds the message home by quoting from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, 15, 14, 140, 36. The refrain is, there is no one that is righteous, not even one. And so what's our basic condition? Paul says our basic human condition is unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. So, so what? What does this matter? Well, beloved, this matters only because there is God. 
And this one true God is holy, just, and righteous. And this one holy, true God will have nothing to do with sinners. Indeed, he is bound by his very nature to punish them, to judge them, to condemn them. Paul writes, Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And so we have this terrible situation. The situation in which man is sinful and God is wrathful. What an impasse. What a terrible dilemma. What a depressing situation. So what's the solution? What's the answer? Well, we have none. We are at a total loss. But nevertheless, thankfully, God is never, our God is never at a loss. Whereas we can find no way out of this horrible dilemma, God creates a way. He creates a way through Jesus, his son. And indeed, he declares that all who repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ will be considered righteous. Just as he is righteous. And that means that they will be in a state of rightness. Innocence, peace, reconciliation with God. And they will be saved. Saved from God's wrath, God's anger, God's condemnation. Saved, as we saw last time, from hell itself. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 says, but now. And whenever Paul says, but now, your ears are supposed to perk up. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. Beloved, there are no more important words anywhere. Not in the Bible. Not in the world. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's what it all comes down to. That's the gospel In a nutshell, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be declared and treated as righteous. Sounds great. What an offer. What a relief. But, but wait a minute. How do I know? How do I know that all of this is, is true? It's just too good to be true. Excuse me for saying that. Where's the proof? Where's the guarantee? Where is the certainty? How can I be sure? 
And the answer, Paul says to you and I, look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There you have the proof you need. For what did God do? Didn't he send his son into the world to rescue us? Didn't he load him down with all of our sins and trespasses? Didn't he send him to the cross to pay and to deliver for us? And did he succeed? Indeed he did. For what did God do? He saw the sacrifice of his son. He weighed and evaluated his obedience. And then when he saw that it was perfect, he raised him from the dead. You see, beloved, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ represents God's stamp of approval on the redeeming work of his son. And if that work were incomplete or imperfect, Christ would still be in the grave. But he is there no longer. He has been raised. Yes, and and when he was raised, and this is the marvel of the gospel, all who believe in him were raised with him. We received a new standing. We receive the confirmation of it. The road back to glory is open. And fellowship, life, and glory are all possible again. That's why Paul says here in Romans 4 that he was raised to life for our justification or for our righteousness. That's Paul's way of saying the resurrection proves Our new status. We're now real shareholders in that righteousness of Christ. We're partakers of it. It's ours. It belongs to us. We may claim it and rest in it. And that means, beloved, that God no longer sees us as people under sin and condemnation. No, our old life has been defeated. Our old life has been conquered. Our old life has no lasting power over us anymore. And so, beloved, the first prophet of the resurrection of Christ is that our old life has changed. But the second, because if your old life has changed, there's a vacuum, a new life has been launched. And that's what we see so very clearly in Colossians chapter 3. That's why we read it. And in Colossians 3, you also see something that Paul does so very often in his letters. First, he'll give you the theory and then the practice. First, the theology, and then the application. First, the indicative, and then the imperative. And so what do you have in the first two chapters of Colossians? He he begins doctrinally, theologically, by, by stressing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
You can read it there in chapter 2. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the firstborn from all creation. Christ is the one by whom all things were created. Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Why, Jesus Christ is everything. Yes, and because he's everything, everything is to be found in him as well. In Colossians 2, Paul says that understanding is to be found in Christ, that freedom is to be found in him, and so are all the blessings of salvation. Yes, and then we come to the opening verse of chapter 3. Since then, it's like in Romans, but then, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. You understand what Paul is doing and saying here? He's moving on to the application of what he's previously said. And he's saying that those who believe in Jesus Christ share in the resurrection of this Christ. That when he came out of the grave, he didn't come out alone. It's almost as if when Christ came out of the grave, he was dragging with him and behind him a huge throng of people. It's as if he has this huge bag. And in it are all his children, all who believe. As well as you and I who profess his name. Truly he arose. And when he went up, figuratively speaking, you and I went up as well. We were raised. But raised up to what? Paul says to to a whole new life, a, a whole new way of living. Read Colossians 3 further. It's all about this new life. It's, it's about putting to death, first of all, what belongs to your old fallen earthly nature. And there Paul mentions sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander. Filthy language, sexual sins, relational sins, personal sins. It's all there. And they all need to be killed, terminated, put to death. By you and I, for they belong to our old, past, pre-resurrection life. And indeed, beloved, realize very well that every time you engage in these sorts of sins... You're falling back into death. You're denying what Christ has done for you. You're turning back the clock and going back to darkness. Resist the darkness. Battle the darkness every day with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
And at the same time, make it your aim to put on different stuff, the stuff of the new and the resurrected life. What's it called? Well, he says it's called compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. Does your life begin to look like that? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. Paul says those are the things on which we must now set our hearts. These are the things that are above, he says, where Christ is. So, beloved, do you begin to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be a springboard for a whole new way of living? If we love our Savior, if He is our greatest joy and our heart's desire, then we shall live as He wants us to live. Then we shall put on His virtues then we shall not go back to the old life that he has conquered, but on to the new life that he has won for us. In short, beloved, Christ must be our incentive, our aid, our joy, our love, our life. And truly, when he is that, then we can also look forward to the third prophet, as you find in Lord's Day 17. And what's the third prophet? Well, it is resurrection. It is our resurrection, our glorious resurrection. Let's look finally at Philippians chapter 3, the last part. And there you're told that the Apostle Paul is in tears. Why is he in tears? Because he writes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In what way? Well, he says, because their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. You are what you eat. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is fixated on earthly things. Who's he referring to? Well, first, of course, he's referring to unbelievers who reject the gospel. But secondly, he's also referring to those who once professed to be believers, but who have now fallen away. And hence the tears and the heartache. But then suddenly, he turns to the believers, to the faithful. And what does he say about them? Well, he says that they are citizens of a different realm of heaven, that they are living a life full of joy and hope because their Savior is coming back. And they're living a life of expectation for they're convinced that a better and brighter future awaits them. A very personal kind of future. What kind of future is this? He says it's a future filled with a new body. With a glorious, everlasting, transformed body. 
Do you know what that will be like? No, but that doesn't matter. For already we know someone who possesses this kind of body, namely Jesus Christ himself. Read the Gospels. When Jesus Christ rises from the dead, he rises in possession of a new and glorious body. We meet him in a body that that seems to have no barriers, no, no vital need even to eat, no restrictions, no limitations. It's the same, but it's not the same. It's somehow more and, and better and higher and greater and more glorious. And now Paul says, so shall we be as well. Do you suffer from some sort of disability now? Do you live with pain in your body every day? Do your eyes or feet or hands no longer work as they should? You look forward to a better body? Well, guess what? It's coming. To face in Jesus Christ, it's coming. One day, your body is going to be like his body. One day, your old body is going to get overhauled and transformed unimaginably. And then you're going to say, I guarantee it, now, now I finally... No, what real living is all about. What a life. See, beloved, there's so much to look forward to. Thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this life, and our future life takes on a whole new dimension. A dimension overflowing with glory. And as you wait and long for it, Paul says on behalf of God himself that only one thing is needful. Only one thing. He writes that in chapter 4, verse 1. And the one thing is this. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.